You can't sell something to someone without empathy. If you have in the last 24 to 36 months found yourself with a small workforce that works remotely, and if you have honestly found yourself wondering in the middle of the day whether anybody is actually doing anything today because you can't watch them, and if you found yourself wondering what you can do about it or what you should do about it or what is ethical to do about it, then today's podcast is for you. I don't have any answers for you. I just want you to know that up front. But Seth Godin does. You've read Seth's books, and uh, he's written an entire book called The Song of Significance that speaks to this idea. We all know that everything just shifted. Culture just shifted. People just shifted out of the workspace and into their home. With that, trust has to change. But in order to trust somebody, they need to perform. And in order to perform, they need to be led differently than they were led a few years ago. The leadership needs, the skill set of a leader just changed. And we're going to address the concerns that you have about this new dynamic in today's conversation with Seth Godin. With that, I want to welcome you to the Business Made Simple podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Every week, we help you optimize your small business for revenue and profit using our six-step plan from the book, How to Grow Your Small Business. Start creating your six-step plan for growth at smallbusinessflightplan.com. I'm your host, Donald Miller. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features famous guests like Alex Hormozzi, Sofia Amoroso, and Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made, you guessed it, their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. In fact, here is a great episode you should check out, The Acquired Podcast Host how they started and grew a multi-million dollar podcast. Sean and Sam are joined by the acquired podcast hosts, Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, to talk about scaling to a large podcast, the company they would like to own, the CEOs you don't want to compete against, and the 100-plus year history of Nintendo. Listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. Seth, it's so great to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. It's a treat. Well, we're honored. I want to talk about something that a lot of my listeners, small business owners, have discovered, gotten themselves into, and that is they are managing a group of remote workers. This happened, what, three years ago now? This massive uh, shift, this punctuated evolution hit us, and I think there were pros and cons to it. My entire 30-person team is remote. We do have a shared workspace, but it's voluntary. Come and go as you want. And we love it. We, have, we haven't seen much of a downside to it, except for maybe communication gets a little bit harder. There's some challenges there, all that kind of stuff. I'm curious. We're going to get into your new book in a second because it addresses some of these issues. What do you see, first of all, are the pros that hit us with this fast migration toward remote work? What were the good things that happened? Well, the first thing I would say is if someone, if we'd been living for 40 years in an era of asynchronous work and uh, the idea that we can distribute our team. And someone invented the idea that you have to get dry cleanable clothes, commute for an hour, go to a really <laughs> expensive building, catch diseases from each other, have lousy coffee, and then drive home for No one would want to do that. <laughs> that the status quo is a powerful thing indeed. And mm -hmm. the story we told about work came from the factory, from industrialism. Right. And I'm sure you've been there, but most of the people listening haven't. My dad 
And now my sister has a real factory. And I've been to real factories where there's that little room with the shag carpeting where the fancy people sit. And then right next door is the place where they make stuff. And what we did was we got rid of the place where people make stuff and just built these edifices filled with shag carpeting and the rest, because that's what many of us do now. And it's the suddenness of it that led to so much of the dislocation. Because in fact, if you are intelligent about how you do it, it's significantly more productive. The problem, and you highlighted it in your question, is managers versus leaders. It's much harder to manage remotely when you have to watch what everyone does all day. Yeah. But it's easier to lead if people are in sync and going in the same direction. They speak up when they need to speak up and they get stuff done when they need to get stuff done. And we can do it faster and more efficiently if we bring intent to what we're doing. You know, it's interesting. One of my leaders and arguably, I think my entire team would say one of our most valuable team members, his name is Kyle, uh, heads up our D&D department, you know, our coders and our designers and all that kind of stuff, moved his entire family from Nashville uh, to Portugal. And yeah, I just know Kyle well enough to know that this was not going to be a problem. And Kyle, and I think it's true, uh, believes himself and I believe as his boss, if you will, that he's actually getting more done in Portugal than he did down the street. Yeah. And his team is happy. They just released a massive, wonderful new product. And but let me—you talk me out of this, uh, Seth, because I'm probably going to get a little bit of, of a hand slap here. You know, as the guy who owns the company, I think most of that is Kyle. It's just the way he's wired, <laughs> right? We can trust Kyle. Can we trust everybody else? And of course, I do trust everybody else. They're not in Portugal. They're here in, in you know in the United States, but. Uh, I do. But at the same time, you know, talk me out of this idea. Well, some people can do it and some people can't. And if we create a whole system, we'll be enabling some people and empowering others, uh, that sort of thing. I'm thinking like a telling you what most small business owners probably think about in their in their darkest moments. Talk us out of that. Well, okay. So first thing is you have done such a good job of narrating the journey of the typical small business owner. The reason that so many small businesses fail is because they're not actually small businesses. They are freelancers who are trying to make their individual entity a little bit bigger. That they are the people who do the work and they are trying to find junior versions of them who are cheaper to make it bigger. That's not a real entrepreneurial venture where the organizer, the owner, the person who's doing the thing, their job is to create the conditions not to do the work itself. Mm. So my argument is when the community orchestra gets together, the conductor isn't worried about how many times the violinist was practicing on her own. He doesn't have to inspect that. He knows there's a performance. And if she's not able to contribute to the performance, that's the problem. But monitoring her getting ready for the performance is a trust issue. And when we think about the work that really, truly matters, where we trust people, the surgeon or the scrub nurse or the school bus driver, the people that we really trust. It's not about surveillance, about performance. It's about making big promises and keeping them. And it's your job as the boss to create the conditions to build a place where the people who want what you want are on the bus. And where we get into trouble is when we say to people, I need you to not look around for other work or even imagine there could be other work because I want you to work here because you have no choices. And I don't want you to speak up, and I want you to do exactly what I'm telling you to do. 
That's what managers need and want. And some things need to be managed. But I believe the future belongs to leaders who can articulate a future that isn't here yet and have people join them who want to make that future happen. You talk about this in your new book, The Song of Significance. The book comes out tomorrow. So I've not had the pleasure of reading the book. I look forward to it. I've got a long trip coming up, and it's going to be one of the audio books that I have queued up because I'm dealing with this as much as anybody. Management and leadership just look different now than they did three years ago. Mm -hmm. All the skill sets have shifted and changed. And so much of it, especially with this with a new workforce coming up and and leaving college and joining us, there's an emphasis on being a good human being rather than just being a good manager. And that, by the way, for all my listeners, is going nowhere. And if you wish that away, you're going to find yourself with a very small company that's shrinking. Talk to me about how much of this is just engaging you being a good human being in the workplace and, and being a good leader. And then I want to get into some of the commitments that we need to make in order to become these good human beings and these good leaders. What does the shift look like from manager to leader? Uh, And I'm supposing that leader means a better human being than a manager, probably. It might. Leadership is voluntary. You don't get the job because you're in the hierarchy. You can have a leader who's a frontline barista. And manager requires authority because you have to tell people what to do or they're fired. They're different processes. Some managers are leaders, some aren't. They don't have to be. But the big thing that I need to highlight here is I am not proposing a super soft, cuddly way of saying, I'm a good human, let's all sing Kumbaya together. In fact, some of the greatest leaders have done really macho things. They've done military things, sports things, tech things, where people worked harder than they could ever imagine because they wanted to, not because they did it out of fear. And so when you hear people from World War II talking about their platoon, right? they didn't engage in that because if they didn't, they were going to be shot at sunrise. They did it because the esprit de corps, the meaning of it, the power of showing up to do work that they were proud of, to make a difference, that's what we've been celebrating our whole lives. That's what we want. We don't want to say, oh, please put me over under surveillance, strip me of dignity and respect, and treat me like a cog in a machine. But yet we call the job human resources as if humans are a resource like machines. They're not. They're the point. And so what I'm arguing is you will make your numbers go up. Your profit, your market share, your impact will go up when people voluntarily engage in the journey when you treat others with respect and dignity. When we see billionaires firing folks online for fun, when we see people saying, when I say jump, you are only to ask how high, those people, they're dinosaurs. You can't build a great organization that way ever again. Companies are under a lot of pressure right now, pressure to get more leads, close deals faster, and get better insights to create the best experience for customers. A CRM can help, but not just any CRM, one that is easy to set up, intuitive to use, and customizable to the way you do business. That is where HubSpot comes in. HubSpot CRM is easy for everyone to use on day one and helps teams be more productive. Drag and drop your way to attention-grabbing emails and landing pages. Set up marketing automation to give every contact white glove treatment. Plus, AI-powered tools like Content Assistant mean less time spent on tedious 
manual tasks, and more time for what matters, your customers. HubSpot CRM has all the tools you need to wow prospects, lock in deals, and improve customer service response times. Get started for free today at HubSpot.com. And now back to the show. There's a bank in Kenya called Juhudi Kalimo. And what Juhudi Kalimo does is they will loan you the money to buy a cow. Someone who has a small acreage farmer, one cow. And you can pay off the loan with the milk that cow gives over the course of months. And then you own the cow forever. The repayment rate at Juhudi Kalimo is over 97%, better than almost any bank in the United States. And the magic of Juhudi Kalimo is that the people who are out there identifying the new loans and collecting the money are by and for and in the community. And when I walked around with the person who was running the little village, everyone greeted him with respect, called him Mr. Chairman, and he did the same back to them. And this idea of the honor associated with the transaction is so different than the debt collector calling up to harass a stranger in the middle of the night. That what we've done is used industrialism to divide us, to push us apart. And what we could do is use capitalism to bring us together because you can't sell something to someone without empathy, without being willing to see what's in it for them, what they need, and treating them accordingly. There's, there's some managers listening now, some leaders listening of small businesses, and um, they're wondering, okay, how do you put this into practice? And, and let me phrase this this way, Seth, because I think it'd be interesting. Let's say I'm 30 years old. I just got a, a job with Seth Godin and your team, and I don't know what I do. Maybe I'm a research assistant or something like that. You know, how do you on-ramp me and welcome me to this culture? And then quite honestly, how do you manage me? to make yeah. sure that I'm getting enough done to cover my salary plus you know, all the other stuff that goes along with running yeah. a business. How do you on-rent me? What are some practical tips? It's a great question. So to be clear, I have no employees, no research assistants, and no staff. And that's a choice. I used to have lots of people when I was running one of the first internet companies and other things. But recently, a year and a half ago, I organized a community-based volunteer project called the Carbon Almanac. And 300 people in 40 countries came together. I was a full-time volunteer for a year. I staked my professional reputation on it. I didn't get paid and neither did anyone else. And I could not order anyone to do anything. It was for us and by us. Well, we built a 97,000-word illustrated, fact-checked, footnoted almanac that became a bestseller in multiple countries and won an award in less than five months faster than any, quote, professional group could have done it. Because some of the tactics, number one, page 19 thinking. We knew there was going to be page 19 in the book somewhere. And none of us were qualified to write, edit, illustrate, and fact check page 19. But there was going to be a page 19. So how could we possibly pull that off? Well, the answer is, you did what you could. You came up with an idea, you wrote a paragraph, and you gave it to the rest of the team we're all running on virtually. We had not one meeting, not one meeting the entire time. Nothing happened in sync. And you made your piece. And we said, here, I made this paragraph. And someone made it better. And someone made it better until it was done. We relentlessly criticized the work. And we never criticized the worker. That's a, that's a huge, I got to stop there. 
because yeah. it's so counterintuitive, but it also requires something big, and that is that everybody has bought, bought into the vision and cares more about the vision than they do about their own ego, I mean, their own self. Yeah. And that's a choice. Did you cast the vision in such a way that people understood, wow, this is bigger than me? That was my job. Yeah. That's my contribution, right? So the second day, someone started acting like a prima donna because they thought they were irreplaceable. I said, we don't do things like that around here. And the third day, someone wanted to claim more credit. And we said, no one's getting credit here. They're making me put my name on the cover, but that's not why we're here. You know, when you hire somebody and you're like, well, now we're committed to each other, you put up with stuff, particularly if they're a high performer, if they're making sales. You get what you reward, you get what, what you tolerate. And the second rule, there's a bunch of them, is turnover is a good thing, not a bad thing. That in the old days, you didn't want turnover for a whole bunch of reasons. One, Onboarding and training took a really long time and it was expensive. Two, the dislocation to the individual was very high. And three, you had an org chart, which is a, like a permanent concrete thing with squares and arrows on it. <laughs> well, now you've got Slack and documents that are available to everyone, which means a new employee can get up to speed in a day, not in three months. Number two, if you are hiring people who have done the work, who can show you a body of work, easy in. And if it's not a good fit, easy out. That the idea that we're going on this journey, and this is what it's like around here, stay if you love it, leave if you don't, transforms the relationship with people. Stay if you like it, leave if you don't. How do you define the culture that you can either accept or reject? Real quick, because I want to keep going, but how, how do you find sure. a culture that people can either accept or reject so they know whether they're going to stay or leave? Right. Well, I, and we can talk about this all day because this is the, at the meat of it. You know, Danny Meyer runs some of the most respected, well-reviewed restaurants in the world. He built Shake Shack, which is worth billions of dollars. If you talk to a waiter at a Danny Meyer restaurant, they will tell you it's different than the last restaurant they worked at. And so will a dishwasher. And so will the person at the front of the house. That who gets their picture on the employee of the month plaque at the International House of Pancakes? right? Is it the person who showed up for their shift on time and didn't talk back to the manager? Because if that's the case, then that's what you're measuring. You've got to figure out why is this person even on this journey with us? Is it to make $14 an hour or is it to make a difference? And it's not just reserved for fancy jobs and orchestra. There are people who work at a coffee shop who feel like they're making a difference to their coworkers, to their best customers, if you give them the chance to make a difference. But too often, small businesses are merely in the image of the owner and everyone is just a junior version following a script. And I've got a real problem with this script mindset, the e-myth thinking of make every job so that the dumbest, cheapest possible person can do it. Well, then you're going to end up with dumb, cheap people. <laughs> I think the alternative is make every job such that it requires human insight and compassion. Or that person, or that person. It's so fun. One of the most fun parts about leading my team is realizing that somebody has some sort of ability, often through their hobbies, that you can say, you know, that's never been part of our business strategy, but can you imagine if this person did this, which is so close to their hobby, and that brought us this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, that those are the most fun moments. You know, when you realize we could start a whole division based on what this person actually wants to do. Right. Simple question that I would ask most of the people who work for you. Is there something you do at work that generates a particularly large amount of value? 
And the second half is how many minutes a day do you get to spend doing that? Wow. Those are two amazing questions. And I, I think if most people, for example, at Marriott answered that question honestly, they would say three minutes a day is all I'm allowed to bring to the table that adds the stuff that keeps our best customers coming back. And the rest of the time I'm doing tasks. And the thing is, the tasks are about to get done by a robot and an AI, right. not by a person. Yeah. So it's the other stuff that we have to get really, really good at because that's how we can race to the top as opposed to just discounting and racing to the bottom where we don't want to be. Seth, you, you talk about making commitments and there are some commitments that we need to make in order to get this orchestra performing well. What are some of these commitments and, and how can we uh, enact those in our current lives and business? Well, to go with the book, I made these pamphlets, which I'm giving out to anybody who buys five. You get 25 of these that you can share with your team. So let me just go through them real quick. We're here to make change happen. And that's surprising because most organizations just want to do what they did yesterday. Mm. But if you're bothering to show up, to do marketing, to create a future, you're here to make a change happen. Let's own that. We are acting with intention. And this goes back to what I was telling you about your book earlier. Lots of small businesses have trouble because they have trouble describing their intention. And your brilliant airplane model is nothing but intention, right? Let's break down into pieces the change we seek to make and do it on purpose. I'll go a little faster. Dignity is worth investing in. Tension is not the same as stress. Mistakes are the way forward. We cannot create an organization that's exploring the liminal state between here and there and also forbid people to make mistakes, that we make a commitment to each other, that we are going to make and share useful mistakes. We won't make them twice, but we will often and eagerly make them once because that's the only way to explore a future that isn't here yet. Another one that goes with criticize the work is take responsibility and give credit. And this is the opposite of the org chart. The org chart says, all you want is authority. And the last thing you want is responsibility. And that defines most American corporations. Get more authority, push the responsibility to others. But if you take responsibility, but give away credit eagerly, what you end up with is a line out front of your door of people who want you to do it again. It becomes this additive cycle. And I, I got a few more, but I'm just going to celebrate the last one, which is celebrate real skills. One of the challenges we have in our country and our culture is false proxies. Now, we need proxies to make decisions. You're not allowed to taste the ketchup before you leave the supermarket. You have to buy it first, right? You're not allowed to, to read the book until after you buy a copy. We judge a book by its cover, by its label. When we were hiring people to work on the railroad, we wanted to hire people who appeared to be really strong because looking really strong might be a useful proxy for the fact that you can do what you need to do to, to lay track. But when we started working indoors and in, with offices with shared carpeting, we don't know if you're going to be good at the stuff we need you to do. So you know what we do? We look to see if you look like us, if you went to a famous college, if you're part of the same caste in society we are, and if you're attractive or whatever it is. We use all these measurements. Is there a typo on your resume? They have nothing to do with whether you can do your job. Instead of looking for a body of work that shows that you are resourceful and connected and honest and generous and compassionate and resilient, those are useful skills. And now we can look for them. Whereas before we couldn't, but the world has shifted. Hmm. And so what I'm trying to define here 
is what happens after the Industrial Revolution? Because it lasted 110 years with a stopwatch, with Henry Ford jerking people around. That's where the expression jerking people around came from. Because the people on the assembly line looked like they were being jerked by a marionette. Mm. Okay, that's clearly over. That brain-dead work is being done by entities that don't have brains. Instead, we are left with human work. That's post-industrial, and it's a choice. These commitments sound paradigm-shifting, to say the least. If you don't mind, I'd like to dive into some that, that struck me. One of them is the difference between tension and stress. And as you say that, I think a lot of our listeners went, oh, man, I've got stress at work because the way I'm interacting with somebody. Can Seth please tell me whether or not I'm doing this right? <laughs> so just so, give us an umbrella view sure. of like tension the versus short, stress. The short version is stress is bad. Stress causes trauma. Stress is what happens stress when- Stress ages us fast. It ages us when you want to do two things at the same time, stay and go, right? Mm. You're in an abusive relationship. You can't go. You can't stay. That's stress. Tension is good. Tension is what happens when you pull a rubber band back just before you let go and it goes to the other thing. Tension is the feeling just before you hear the punchline of a joke. If there's no tension, there can be no change. So we willingly inflict tension on people, but we do everything in our power to make sure it doesn't feel like stress. So tension would be ambitious object objectives. Yeah. And I want you not quite sure whether you can pull this off. And there's so much grace if you don't, right? Because we'll just learn. Right. Uh, how do we decrease the amount of stress in the lives of our coworkers as we lead teams? Well, a key part of it is coherence because stress is, I want to stay and I want to go. Well, if you embrace turnover, they can go. So that stress goes away. That when we act with misogyny or we make things personal, that's stressful because I can't change who I am. And you just said you don't like who I am. Mm. Whereas if we criticize the work and not the worker, well, I can change the work. There's tension involved in that, but it's not stressful because you have told me in your written commitments, you're not going to challenge who I am. You are going to give me direct advice about the work. Hmm. I love it. One last thing that I think so many of our small business owners will want to know more about, celebrate real skills. Celebrate real skills. In your definition, Seth Godin's definition of a real skill is what? So hard skills are easy to measure. Hard skills are how many words per minute can you type or can you dump a basketball? Real skills are sometimes called soft skills. They are things we can learn, but we don't think we can, like how to be more honest or more charismatic or better read or more curious. Of course, you can become more curious. You just have to practice. And if we can highlight real skills, other people will learn them too, because we've made it clear that they're important. Mm, I love it. Seth, the book is called The Song of Significance. It is available now. If you're listening on the 29th, it comes out tomorrow. If you're listening on the 30th, grab the book today. You mentioned that if you buy five copies, you get a special pamphlet with some of those commitments in it. How can people do that, Seth? Go to sethstoplog slash song, and there's videos there and plenty of links as well. That sounds great. Wonderful to have you back. I, I hope that you come always again. Yeah, always a treat, Seth. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Don. Be well. Keep making a ruckus, man. Always a wonderful conversation with Seth. I, I think of Seth as, uh, you know, is he an artist? Is he a business person? He's all those things, of course. But when I think about a sort of mantle to give him, it is profit. I think of Seth as the guy who, who sort of looks out on the horizon and says, here's where things are going. 
and I think he's often right. And in the instances of remote workers building trust, teams working differently, there's no question these things are shifting. But I think of him as a business prophet, among other things. That said, at the end of every episode, I give you a plan of action from today's coaching conversation. These are the main takeaways you can immediately implement to strengthen and grow your business. This whole episode was a bunch of actions that you can take, a bunch of commitments that you can make. There was one piece of what Seth talked about that rang very true to me, and it's something that I want to actually incorporate more into our work culture, and that is collaboration. I mean, his story of working on on that one project with 300 people around the world and collaborating to make something really, really cool is, is just so awesome. I mean, as I thought about that, we're coming up with a coaching product uh, that we will ship in March of next year. And I thought, oh, I want, I want this to be a collaboration with our coaches to be able to make this instead of like us building something and then shipping it to, for them to accept or reject. I think that that begins by you and I and you on your team asking a very simple question over and over and over again until it changes your culture. And the, the question is this, is there anything that you think I can do to make this better? Is there anything you can, that you think I can do to make this better? I don't care what it is. I don't care if you have somebody on your team who goes with you to a open house because you're a real estate agent. It's pulling that person aside after the open house and saying, hey, is there anything that you think we can do to make an open house better, to make it more effective? If you are a content person, is there anything that you think we can do to make this social media strategy better? This, to me, sort of levels the playing field and sort of creates that horizontal hierarchy map, if you will. Because what sort of leader goes to the people that work under them and say, is there anything that you think I can do to make this better? I'll tell you what kind of leader, a humble leader, a leader who loves the end result, the content, the work more than they love themselves or their ego, a leader that trusts that they have hired very, very smart people who see things they cannot see. This has been probably in the past 24 months. This has kind of crept into our culture in the most wonderful way. And I got to tell you, as the owner and leader of the company, I like working much better for many reasons. One, you get to collaborate with a team of really smart people who are very fun to work with. Second, the work is just better. The stuff that we are producing is so much better. So the plan of action is this for all of us. Add this question to your routine, almost daily box of usage, if you will, for vocabulary. Is there anything you think we can do to make this better? Is there anything you think we can do to make this better? You're going to get hooked on it. You're going to get hooked on it. And let me also say this. If you work for a small business, when's the last time you were asked that? When's the last time you were asked that? And maybe you can have them listen to this podcast as a way of introducing that idea because you've got some ideas that you believe have been silenced, but I don't think they've necessarily been silenced. I think what's happened is nobody really thought you had that ability because you haven't been given that ability. A lot of us think we're being suppressed and held down, but the second somebody discovers you have that ability, for almost all of you, they will come back to you over and over and over again. They just don't know you have it. And you haven't been, you know, it's fair. You haven't been given the opportunity to express that. But that's also your fault, right? Like you need to go to somebody and say, hey, I have some ideas about how to make this better. Would you like me to share those with you or would you like me to just sort of stay in my lane? If they come back and say, really need you to stay in your lane, look for another job. Look for another job. And no, no offense, that's their right. That's how they want to do business. 
you look for another job because your, your career is stuck behind the people who are just not interested in your opinion. Hate, I hate that they're going to lose you, but they're going to lose you. And if you are, are the leader of the company, my God, you got, you got smart people all over. I mean, and it's not just that they are, they are smarter than you or they see things. When two people throw a ball around, they learn to catch and throw a ball. When one person has a ball, they learn to hold a ball, which is useless in all sports. The same is true in business. Leaders, if you're listening to me, just ask, is there anything that you think I can do to make this better? <laughs> Some of you are going to look at jaws dropped because they've never been asked that. Ask again, ask again, ask again, ask again, right? Uh, you will find that you change your entire culture, that the work you produce gets better, and you will find that you are more respected, that you do more business. Everything will get better for you. Everything will get better for you. Okay. With that, thank you so much for listening to the Business Made Simple podcast, where we help you optimize your small business for revenue and profit using our six-step plan. You can create your six-step plan for growth at smallbusinessflightplan.com. Make sure to visit. See you again next time.